What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Foreign and Domestic Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Will, and today we are going to be talking about, we're sort of departing from current events again a little bit, um, and talking about something that is more fun and interesting, which is sort of way too early speculation about uh, the 2024 Republican presidential primary. Yeah, and then also at the end, um, there's going to be a little bit about um, recent developments in the country of Burundi. But uh, for the most part, we'll, we're going to be focusing on uh, the potential candidates and how the 2024 Republican primary might end up looking. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I, I said way too early, but the fact of the matter is when you look at many of these figures, it is clear that they are already running. Yeah. Like two in particular have started running campaign ads in their home state mm-hmm. rather than campaigning against their, you know, local political opponents, their attack ads on Joe Biden. Yeah. So people that are, they're really working to make themselves national political figures Anyway, let's uh, sort of dive in. I, I have a, a list here, and I'm going to start with some of the maybe less well-known names. Um, mm. And the first one I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with is Ron DeSantis, who's mm. the governor of Florida. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you'll see that there are a lot, like, on my list alone, I've got four Floridians. Mm-hmm. There could be four Florida Republicans running for president in 2024, which could be an interesting dynamic. But anyway, Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, um, and he's an interesting figure because he ran his 2018 gubernatorial campaign very much in the style of Trump. Mm-hmm. There was a, a, a famous incident where his then opponent, Andrew Gillum, um, when asked if he believed DeSantis was a racist, he said, I believe the racists think you're a racist. Um, but since taking office, he's managed to sort of simultaneously accomplish conservative obje- objectives and become widely popular. And I'm going off pre-COVID stuff because mm. for governors everywhere, it's pretty much boosted their approval ratings. Yeah, But he was sending about 60% pre-COVID, which is impressive in, in a swing state. Um and, yeah, and he's I'm reading that. here that he got a around a forty percent approval among Democrats too, which is quite interesting. Yeah, that that's pretty notable. Um, and and he did that by tacking to the center on issues like education and the environment. Um, and to me, just like my analysis here is that he seems to be not necessarily a pragmatist in the policy sense, which I think to an extent he might be. Mm-hmm. But he seems to like have a have a very good political sense, right? So he he did what he needed to sort of align himself with, you know, Trump's Republican Party um, in 2018 while running for governor, um, and then he was able to, you know, become more broadly popular. Yeah. So he's a he's a pretty interesting figure. Um, I don't know about handicapping. I, I think if, if we were to do buy, sell, and hold, I would buy it. Mm-hmm. I. So, you got one? Um, 
I'm just gonna go right off the bat and say uh, Mike Pence. Cause, yeah. Yeah, I I think he's quite a likely candidate. I think especially if there is a Trump victory in uh, 2020, I think it's a lot more likely that he'll end up being the nominee. Um, and like Pence, he basically was at the same time like originally like an establishment Republican. He also sided with Trump, so he's got like both of those sides of the party. And I think he would, also being the the vice president, um, he would have a good chance uh, running in the uh, Republican primaries, and um, definitely would have a pretty good shot at the nominee. Because obviously, like we've talked about in in previous podcasts, usually the vice president um, that you select, you're usually choosing who the nominee of your party is going to be, uh, either in the next year or, uh, within the next, uh, couple years or, yeah. Yeah. I mean, frequently that has happened. Mm -hmm. The, the two exceptions from that rule were in 2016 when Joe Biden didn't run, but that was a little different because the understanding kind of had always been that Hillary Clinton would, would be the one to run. Yeah. Um, and then the the other one is Dick Cheney. Like he was he was never in the conversation in two thousand eight, which was abnormal. But in the context of the times, it made a lot of sense because Bush was incredibly unpopular, and Cheney was associated with a, a lot of the least popular parts of Bush's presidency. And he also just wasn't, you know, a, a super political. I mean, he. His only previous, like, elected office had been, um, before being vice president, had been member of Congress. So he was not somebody that had, you know, worked up the ranks through, like, charisma and political acumen. He had done it through, you know, being good at the sort of meta politics, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And doing policy and stuff. So. I just want to, like, go off on a tangent just a little bit here. I think um, there's, like, really two ways this primary could really go. And that really depends on if Trump wins in 2020. Oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah, if he he wins in 2020, I feel it would most likely go more in favor of the the Trump people in the Republican Party. So, like, Mike Pence would have a much better chance of uh, becoming the nominee. And I feel like less people would try and challenge that. But I, I feel if uh, Trump ends up losing in November, it would kind of open the floodgates, per se, and a ton of different uh, people from various factions of the Republican Party would end up trying to run. Yeah, so the thing about Mike Pence, though, is I, I actually think the, the sort of whether Trump wins or loses cuts slightly different. Mm-hmm. Um, Pence is not the most... He, he's not, like, super great at politics. He's not, like, as great on the stump, um, on the campaign trail as some of these other, especially some of the younger people on this list. Yeah. And he was chosen to be vice president because, you know, he wanted to consolidate the evangelical vote, which is something that would play to his benefit if and when he were to run for president. Evangelicals are a substantial uh, segment of the Republican electorate. Um but he's he also is not like obviously being trump's vice president he's associated with trump's brand but he's kind of 
more soft spoken, like personality wise, he, he does not sort of fit that bill uh-huh. in, in a way that some other people do. He's also like more fiscally conservative. Um, and, you know, Trump has only in select governing instances broken from um, past Republican platforms in, in, in terms of his fiscal policy. Mm-hmm. But his campaign rhetoric was more was more distinct in that regard. Like he, he said stuff about wanting universal health care. Like he took a more economically populist campaign route. And that was something that probably appealed to a lot of the people that he swung in, in, in key states. And Pence just ideologically does not fit that in the way that some of the other people mm-hmm. on this list do. Yeah. Um, and, and that brings me specifically to Josh Howley, who I, I believe is the youngest person on the list. He's mm-hmm. 40 years old. And he's a, a senator from Missouri. So in my opinion, he sort of represents the intellectualized version of Trump's like haphazard right wing populism. And because he's also he's very socially conservative after being propelled to victory in 2018 by the controversy surrounding uh, Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings. Mm. Uh, th- this is like one of maybe two Senate races you can really point to as being decided by like the fallout from those hearings. Um, Howley has been consistently one of the most socially conservative members of the Senate, but he's also broken from conservative orthodoxy in ways that would have been pretty much unthinkable prior to Trump. He sort of like molded the president's anger at social media companies into like antitrust plans yeah i I see i I saw he um was uh involved in some legislation against uh tech companies like to like restrict uh their power yeah yeah there's stuff where you you look at his platform you look at elizabeth warren's you know busting Mm. tech companies up platform it's not that much different yeah he seems to be like sort of this part of this I guess I'll call it new right. I don't really know if there's really yeah. a term for it, but like in sort of well, new conservatism where it's right. like, yeah. where it's like against the big companies and also against like intervention worldwide and stuff like that. It, he, he appears also to be quite anti-interventionist, which is interesting. Yeah. I mean, we're approaching this from like a punditry perspective because I, I think that makes this fun and interesting, mm-hmm. but like ideologically, on this list he and one other person that's to come are the two who i really really who who i think they are smart and know what they're talking about and are also so so wrong yeah like so absurdly wrong like i think trump's wrong about almost everything but i don't think he's smart right so if you had somebody who wasn't able to be persuaded through like a call from Lindsey Graham to not make some disastrous foreign policy decision, like that—that's a—that's a more scary thing. But yeah, I think that he kind of falls squarely in the if Trump wins 
section. And, mm-hmm. like, just to preface this, this also has to do with, like, the degree of victory. Like, if it's a, if it's a narrow victory, or it, if it's a narrow loss by Trump, which, if we're going to, like, make a distribution of, like, the possible outcomes at this point, it is pretty likely that Joe Biden wins this election. Mm-hmm. Just, I, I mean, looking at all the available polling, I'm not saying that Joe Biden's up 15 points like some polls have shown. But the but, polls have been showing he's yeah he's been rising in popularity. Yeah. Yeah. It, he, for Trump to win the Electoral College without winning the popular vote, he would have to lose by less than 5%. But, you know, if he loses by 1%, it's pretty likely he still wins the Electoral College. But if he loses by 5%, it's it's pretty unlikely. So with that in mind, consider the fact that the consensus number that most pollsters have Biden up by is like 6 to 10 points. So let's call it 8. Yeah. And notably, like, even though you saw a lot of polls that had Hillary Clinton, like, marginally ahead of Trump, you also saw that they were in, like, high 30s, low 40s, right? Like, Hillary Clinton was not getting greater than 50% in a lot of these polls because mm-hmm. there are a whole lot of, there were more undecided voters in that election, and there were certainly less it seems here um biden's gotten over 50 percent in some polls so that that seems notable to me yeah um and also consider the fact the dynamics of this are like a little weird but like the political truism is that undecides break against the incumbent right like that that's that's the theory but anyway so consider that there's like a range of outcomes from this election and and you have some in which trump loses narrowly but if which this is in the range of possibilities like if biden is up by 15 points nationally that translates into an electoral landslide that includes him winning places like texas georgia certainly North Carolina, like a whole lot of states, Montana even, like that would be something that would really force the Republican Party to have a reckoning internally yeah, and might push uh, Republican voters towards a more pragmatic option. I mean, there's this old truism that I think has kind of been flipped on its head, which is that Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line. And the theory behind that is, well, you know, whoever is next in line is the Republican nominee. Well, in 2000, the runner-up was John McCain. Guess who was the nominee in 2008? In 2008, the runner-up was Mitt Romney. Guess who the nominee was in 2012? Like, the theory is that Republicans have these flirtations with these more, like, out there candidates, but then eventually, you know, come back home. And that was sort of flipped on its head in 2016 and subsequently in 
2020 where Democrats fell in line and Republicans are clearly in love. <laughs> uh-huh. But I don't know. I, I, I think that it's possible that you could see a return to that sort of more pragmatic voting mm-hmm. if, um, if, if Trump loses in a landslide. If it's narrow, I think there's still somewhat of a reckoning, but a lot of these figures we're talking about, some of them, it's pretty decidedly like they have a pathway in this scenario and they don't in this other scenario. But with a lot of them, they'll probably just change the way they act, right? Yeah. Like, they'll, they'll change the way they're campaigning. Like, because, I mean, they sort of are campaigning already. Mm-hmm. Um, just not open. Yeah. Um, anyway, that, that, that's my spiel on that. Um, but I, I sort of got sidetracked from Senator Howley. Um, and, and another notable thing about him is he has stronger ties to labor than most of his Republican colleagues. Mm-hmm. It, and this is my sort of last observation on him, which is that he would certainly mark a clearer and larger sort of lurch into populism than Trump did. Yeah, he seems like, like I said, to be part of that sort of new right, that's new right wing populism type thing. And he seems to be like fully committed to it. Yeah, I it you've seen Trump sort of be able to be managed in, in some ways by like Paul Ryan, but I mean, clearly that was very hard. Like Paul Ryan hated his job so much that he just quit. But I I think Howley, you, you would not be able to persuade him as easily. No, he seems pretty set in his beliefs. And like you said, he's smart. Yeah. So you, you got another one, Nikki Haley. The former ambassador to the United Nations. Mainly because she seemed to basically be a rising figure. um, And obviously she would be a good pick to attract uh, female and minority voters, considering she's a female minority. Um, And um, she was also being considered to be uh, Trump's possible replacement for Pence when when talks about that were in the air. And she's so, pretty much established herself as a prominent political figure in the Republican Party now. I don't know that I believe that there were, like, super high-level talks about yeah, replacing... I don't know if I believe it either. Hence, but... on the ticket. Yeah. I think it's, like, some sort of lower-level staffers probably talked about it, and mm-hmm. then it was leaked. Or maybe, like, Trump made a comment that he yeah. wasn't really that serious about, you know? But the reason that Nikki Haley was in that conversation was that in sort of, I would say, maybe the first two years of Trump's presidency, she did, like, a remarkably good job at, like, sort of walking this line that if the Trump boat sank, she would be able to be the first one out of there on a life raft, but that she wouldn't burn bridges with Trump and his people to the extent that she doesn't have a future because the Republican base resents her. Mm -hmm. Like she was at the UN, um, which I mean, being in New York rather than DC kind of insulates you from some, some issues Um, being looped up in in an administration that is as plagued by scandal as this one. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but she sort of subsequently abandoned that like tightrope walk and has fully jumped on board the Trump train, so to speak. Like mm. she would that's why I think that compared to like 2018, maybe I would sell her. Like I think her stock was higher then than it is now because she would have been a good, if she had stayed the course, she would have been a remarkably good option if Trump had lost. And now she's sort of, you know, put herself squarely at the center of the vote with, no life rafts, life rafts in sight, and even if he wins re-election, she's not like the go-to successor to Trump. Yeah, and, and like, like considering she's basically playing the pander to everybody game. Yeah, it's, I mean it's kind of hard to find like that sort of base. Yeah. I mean, she was playing that. Yeah. She's not anymore, but like. She was for a while in that. Yeah. It's. Established her place. There's. Yeah. I I mean, I I think there is some base for her, but it's not big enough to propel her to a primary victory. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's why I think she's. She's not super. Um she's not as large of a prospect as she once was. Um, so I'm trying to decide who I want to bring up next. And I'll, I'll go with, um, I'll go with a little bit of a wild card. Um, Donald Trump Jr. Ah, okay. Which, like, he, he would not be in this conversation because like I don't think he's somebody that should be taken seriously but in in, usually I don't do much preparation for if any for episodes of this podcast but I did a little looking at some of the you know preliminary polling that has been done and consistently in a lot of these polls the top person that you know, Republicans say they would like to see succeed Trump is Mike Pence, which is understandable. He's the vice president. I, I don't know that he would be that popular when would have that much support when Republicans are presented with some more Trumpy options. But number two, right behind him is consistently Donald Jr. Yeah, which is quite interesting. So, yeah, I I think that's this, a lot of that. I think when you do polling on a race this early, the results I think are better correlated to each individual's name ID than like the ultimate vote share in the prime. Yeah, but he he's on conservative media a lot. He you know sort of does the new conservative media stuff. Um, (laughs) And he seems to be sort of trying to cultivate himself into a political figure. He wrote a a book called Triggered. (laughs) So... (laughs) (laughs) And America's stranger to uh, political dynasties, so... (laughs) What? America's no stranger to political dynasties, so... Well, a a lot have been more 
more dignified than that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have a theory. Like, the Kennedys started bad, and then they just kept getting better. Mm-hmm. But the Bushes started great. Like, I- I'm saying, like, Joe Kennedy, the Hitler apologist, obviously. <laughs> bad. <laughs> but then with the Bushes, you had... um. I, his name eludes me, but George H.W. Bush's father, senator, liberal Republican, cool guy. Then you had George H.W. Bush, great president, cool guy. George W. Bush, less so... He's a decent president, but not the best. Yeah. Um, and then you have Jeb Bush's son, who is now endorsed Trump. And then also so. Jeb himself. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Please clap. I don't want to rag on on Jeb. I I kind of like Jeb, but he seems just like a nice guy. He, he was not him. great at doing politics. No. Just a little bit of a sidetrack to sort of show how political fortunes can change pretty rapidly. In the 90s, like there was talk about a continuation of a, a Bush political dynasty, right? Mm. But it was mainly centered on Jeb rather than George. And then you had the situation, I, I, I don't recall what year it was. I think it was 92. Maybe it was 1990. Regardless, you had um, George Bush running what seemed like a, a pretty futile um, campaign against Ann Richards, who was a, a popular Democratic governor in texas Mm -hmm. and you had george or you had jeb bush running a gubernatorial campaign in florida and it was expected that jeb would win and george would lose but the opposite happened so oh yeah things can change and i i think what happens there is is jeb was maybe the favorite like people who were really involved and stuff like he had rock hard credentials and you know had a good experience and everything but george bush was like this charismatic like fun guy who previously owned a baseball team right like which another quick aside this is not a baseball podcast (laughs) but i think the mlb should make george bush the commissioner of baseball anyway (laughs) um Oh man. Anyway. I think yeah, I saw I, I think I saw George Bush at an Astros game once. I think he was there. Well he, he yeah, I think he's more of a Rangers fan. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think yeah, it's good. I think, I think it was an Astros Rangers game. Oh yeah. Because he, he owned the Rangers. Yeah. But any anywho. Um Yeah, that that that's sort of my take on Donald Trump Jr. I mean, who knows? He's definitely an if Trump wins um, option. Yeah. And sort of, I'm pairing this with him as well. Tucker Carlson. Mm. Like, at first blush, you know, dumb. Would... Like, dumb idea. But it's it's something that's not without merit to consider. Like, I mean, it, <laughs> a Tucker Carlson candidacy would surely be completely without merit but like it's something that could happen he's, yeah 
he rep like Howley, he he represents a more co coherent version of Trump's populism. And he's sort of taken these like far right populist ideas, although that's a pretty generous way to put it. He frequently touches on white supremacist rhetoric. Yeah. Um, and he takes it and he presents it to his the Republican base through his primetime Fox News slot, which, oh, yeah, you know, primetime Fox News is some of the best ratings cable television. So there, there's a lot of viewers. Um, he's also done some interesting stuff. Like he, he's been less sycophantic to Trump. Like he, he's criticized Trump on some things. Mm. Um, then like say Sean Hannity, who's like just there to be a yes man. Like Sean Hannity, I don't think has a coherent political ideology, right? He's just whoever leading Republicans are, he, he's their lapdog. <laughs> But yeah. Tucker Carlson, like, either he is a true believer in this, or uh, which you know, I, I, um, but he, in what I think was a pretty remarkable instance, he ran, he opened his show with a segment praising this economic plan that Elizabeth Warren put out during the primary, mm. and. Um, the economic plan that Elizabeth Warren had put out was sort of this like kind of isolationist sort of anti-free trade thing basically it was supposed to be like economic patriotism I think she called it which <laughs> you know we're, we're, but, we're not we're not too big fans of that no well I mean I, I, I like good economy i mean but opposition to free trade every every bit of economic evidence there is points to free trade being better for every yeah like I mean, that's just it's not that debatable i mean I, I think you can have an interesting and important conversation about how you mitigate some of the consequences that free trade has because yeah there there are some but sure certainly on net it's a, a huge plus mm -hmm. but anyway that that's tucker Carlson. do you have some more you want to do um i don't really have a particular one but this is like my last like one i'd say is just the generic like never trumper candidate i guess like someone like a mitt romney type type guy someone like that i think would end up running <laughs> they probably have a better chance if trump ended up losing i don't know exactly who's gonna fill that role but i feel like someone would end up running uh, like under like from that sort of camp i don't think mitt romney yeah can, I, I don't can, think it's gonna I, be mitt romney either because he's already I, ran and he's getting kind of old if that makes any sense yeah he looks really good for his age though i saw yeah. a picture like he, he, he's doing pretty well but regardless i i think the person for this option maybe there there are two people um ben's ass mm. and marco rubio yeah 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 I, 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 think, I don't. I think Marco Rubio. Go ahead. Rubio, I think, is more likely, in my opinion, because just because really? he's ran before, and also, also, personally, I don't know too much about Ben Zast. So, yeah. So Ben Zast did this thing where, in the first two years of the Trump presidency, he was very openly critical 
-hmm. he was one of the people that was like you know in that jeff flake john mccain bunch of you know gop rebels who everybody was talking about it it was it was a big thing um but then as election season rolled around he got scared of a, a a primary challenge um and, and he sort of shut up he he's come back a little bit been more he didn't do what nikki haley did and, and just openly start praising trump yeah but he sort of stopped criticizing um but I, I think he makes the most sense. Rubio, I, I, I hesitated to even put him in this conversation because he just, like, I don't see how he can successfully run for president at this point. Yeah. He, I mean, he was just, like, literally, like, bullied by Donald Trump in the primary. Like, Donald Trump said mean, terrible things to him. <laughs> Right, and he responded back by like sort of trying to do the same thing, but not doing it well, like tiny hands or whatever. But he then since has gone totally pro-Trump and sort of tried to, I guess, I think what he is trying to do, I think he sees the dangerous streak within Trump's foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And he thinks that if he's openly, you know, praising Trump and is an ally and Trump trusts him, which it seems like at this point he does, then you can have, like, more of a, like, I feel like he kind of sort of basically wants to counterbalance Rand Paul, right? Yeah. Like, Rand Paul is going to call Trump and say, pull the troops out of everywhere, and never use the u.s military to do anything ever again let everybody invade us just dismantle the u.s military well (laughs) no but i i think rubio wants to be the person that gets trump on the phone next but i don't think that he really has a much prospect in um in republican politics from here on in i think he'll be i think he'll hold that senate seat for quite a while but he won't be as prominent as he used to no, be. No. No. Um, and then another Florida figure is Matt Gates or Gatz. I, I forget how you say it. And he's a super interesting figure to me. Mm. Um, he's a congressman, but he quickly sort of aligns himself with Trump on policy. He also does sort of like the young... He's able to reach, like, young conservative activists, like, you know, Turning Point USA or whatever. Uh-huh. You know, he, he he talks to all those constituencies. But he also, like, he is a younger person. And I think that makes him, like, he is he acknowledges that climate change exists, which that should not be a controversial issue, mm. but like, and he's, he acknowledges he's pro that, cannabis legalization as well. Yeah. He, he also, something that I thought was a pretty remarkable thing and led me to sort of admire him a bit, even though I, you know, <laughs> despise a lot of things he has a done and B a lot of things that he supports, mm-hmm. but he, 
there was this thing. I forget how this was like this fall. Yeah. I think it was in like September and um, Katie Hill, uh, a Democrat Congresswoman from California was engulfed in this sort of sex scandal. Mm -hmm. Um, Apparently she had an affair with a staffer. Um, It it was a lot of like salacious stuff. There were pictures that were involved and basically she was driven to resign. Um, And I think this is partially just like Matt Gates and Katie Hill were friends and, and he really hated seeing this happen to her. And part of it is that, like, we're entering a younger generation of prominent political figures, right? Yeah. And some of those figures have, in politics, you have a dichotomy. Always knew they wanted to be in politics. And people who got here just because that's the way their life took them. They were in business or they were in X, Y, or Z fields prior to being here and some of those people that didn't always know they wanted to be in politics might have things like damaging pictures and sort of other things that could be used to cause scandal yeah right and i think matt gates basically is is sort of speaking for this younger generation of politician and look everybody's got stuff they're embarrassed of like Everybody has details in their personal lives that would look somewhat salacious if they were to be exposed to everybody. Mm. So I, I think that's that's another interesting part of it. Um, I think he does have the sort of charisma and like, you know, being good at politics to do a lot of interesting stuff. At the same time, he's a congressman. That's not traditionally a, a great launching pad to the presidency. Yeah. Um, and then the last person from Florida that I want to talk about, I got a lot of names on this list. I'm going to eliminate a chunk of the ones that I don't think are that interesting mm-hmm. so we can sort of get through this a little faster. Yeah. But um, is Rick Scott. So he's senator and former governor of Florida. He's been... He, he's not like voted against trump like he's not in fact uh, he was one of the earlier elected officials to endorse trump when trump ran for president Mm -hmm. but he also kind of falls within this more establishment you know pro-business fiscally conservative wing of the republican party um another thing that is an arrow in his quiver is that so he's a senator and was the governor of florida i think a reason that he would be motivated to run for president and and this is something you see with a lot of it is not an uncommon career move for governors to go on to the senate it happens but they never like it as much as when they were governor because when you're governor you're the guy Mm. and when you're a senator you're one of a hundred guys so, actually, uh, another interesting sort of, well, actually, that, that's a story for another time. But anyway, the point I was going to make is that um, Rick Scott has 
he's able to win a not insubstantial amount of the Latino vote in Florida. Mm-hmm. So that could be something that, you know, Republicans would like in national political figures. So that that's why I think he's interesting. Um, <clears throat> I don't think he's particularly impacted by Rick Scott or by, by Trump winning or losing. Mm-hmm. Another person, Dan Crenshaw. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was actually thinking him, too. I just think I forgot to mention him. But, yeah, that he, I, th- I think he would be quite an interesting candidate. And, you know, because he gained a lot of popularity uh, through a lot of media-related things and also his uh, campaign in Texas. And he's, well, he's I quite mean... One of the, he's, he's quite a popular Republican figure now. I mean, we can we can say it that way, mm-hmm. but the fact of the matter is, he's like a national political figure because Pete Davidson made fun of him on SNL. Yeah, <laughs> right. Like Pete Davidson yeah. made a joke that was out of line, and then Crenshaw reacted admirably. Mm-hmm. Right. But other than that, like nobody can really explain. The other thing that Crenshaw's sort of done well is like. He's the Ben Shapiro of comics. Like, I'm sure he was in debate in high school. Like, he's mm-hmm. good at, like, very rudimentary, like, reasoning skills. Yeah. I don't think he's probably a great policy thinker, but I think he's probably a good policy communicator. Um, but again, being a member of Congress, that that's a hard place to get to the point. presidency from there. I think he's probably a, a good post-Trump option, like Trump lost. Mm-hmm. Um, I think his prospects would rise. And then <laughs> somebody that I would definitely sell if we're doing buy, sell, hold, or maybe, maybe buy in terms of like, okay, I would sell him. Like he, I think his prospects have decreased since say 2016, mm-hmm. but his prospects have increased over like the last two weeks. Yeah. And that's, that's Tom Cotton. Uh, the reason is that he he had this public spat with the New York Times, or well, the New York Times uh, published a, a very controversial op-ed of his um, that drew a large backlash, um, and and that's you know I, I guess made his popularity go up among conservative circles. Mm. Um, he, he's one of the figures that has run an ad in his state against Biden. <laughs> so, and like Arkansas is not a state that is in, in danger of voting for Joe Biden. <laughs> mm. But yeah, he also though, like he is, I hesitate to call him like a hawk because I think he's like, if you had like a, okay, if you had like a le- leftist sort of like tanky or whatever, yeah. explain to somebody what they think. Say you or I believe like we're people who you know have more interventionist inclinations because you know <laughs> we shouldn't let dictators murder their own people. Yeah. 
that, the, that's... The, the, the crazy out of the park wild position that uh, says we shouldn't uh, support genocide. Yeah, but like, if you, like, he is the sort of like leftist character, what like interventionists of what hawks are. Mm-hmm. Like he's and he's hawkish around the board. Like he is incredibly hawkish on immigration. He is more interventionist, um, but I think in ways that are kind of unwise. Yeah. Like it, it seems like it's more of a nationalist interventionist thing, which like there's an important distinction there. Mm-hmm. Because like when I say we should, you know, try to make regime change happen in Syria, it's because it the it's because human rights and the implication there is that we should work with our allies to make that happen. Uh-huh. So just making the and world a better ne- place in general. Yeah, and we're not necessarily pursuing US interests. Mm-hmm. Tom Cotton like made a comment about China a month or so ago, basically saying that we, we shouldn't allow I guess we shouldn't allow Chinese students to get STEM degrees in the U.S. And this was so baffling to me because it's, he's somebody who purports to be hawkish on China. But, like, if you actually were concerned about, like, the global power struggle between China and the U.S., you would recognize that it is actually a great thing for us in, in that struggle that their best students come to the u.s for higher education like that's mm. that's a good thing that's that's yeah. a it's kind of a leg a, up on them a way in which we're winning like they come and they learn in the u.s and like you know they learn about different models of government and in many cases they learn that authoritarianism is is bad <laughs> but like that's it's just so disingenuous and to me that's more about you know, his own nativism, his own nationalism, than actually pursuing foreign policy interests. But he's, yeah, he's an interesting figure, I guess. Mm. But, you know, he's young, he's in the Senate, he almost, you know, is by default part of this conversation. And then the last person I have is Donald Trump. Ah, constitutionally allowed if he loses. But, like, everything we've seen Trump do, I think it's so hard to imagine that he loses and he's just gone from the public arena. Yeah. Now, maybe the way that that manifests itself is he starts a a news network which purportedly was his plan when he thought he was going to lose the election Mm -hmm. um but another way is you know he's gonna have some narrative i think inevitably i think some people like on resistance twitter kind of work themselves up into this lather that like trump's gonna refuse to leave and it's gonna be like yeah some some crazy we're going to have a civil war stuff. which is not going to happen <laughs> what is i think very likely to happen is he's going to have some narrative about how the election was stolen mm. 
there might be some drama with him leaving, but there's not going to be any real difficulties. It's not going to be like he's going to hold on to power and declare like military rule everywhere. Yeah. It's not going to be and, some crazy and, dystopian nightmare. Like something actually, like something that I that I think it is good that we've seen in the past week or two with regards to this is our, our military leaders have shown that they are like, I think a, a thing that we've done really well with our military as an institution is we have implanted into the institutional memory, the role they play in our society, mm-hmm. right? Like that is, our military is like if you ask, you know, high-level military officers what you know their job is about, like what their like overarching motive is, you know, it's it's protecting freedom, it's protecting like you know American exceptionalism, it's protecting like you know all that good stuff. Yeah, it's right. It's it's protecting America itself. Yeah, and and, the con- and also America, concept in the physical nation. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's probably the best way I've ever heard it put. Um, but you contrast this, and this is in another episode about you know the police. But you contrast that with the way the police function as like an institution that has clearly gotten the wrong idea about what its function and responsibilities are. Oh yeah. So. You've seen a lot of military leaders sort of denouncing the ideas that Trump and Cotton put forth in terms of military suppression of protests, which at once, I think, so you have sort of a a duality of things. I think Colin Powell handled it well on State of the Union last Sunday, which I should note is a television appearance in which he endorsed Joe Biden for president, mm. which that's not the most surprising like Republican or Republican adjacent endorsement to have ever happened. Like Colin Powell endorsed Obama too, but um, he brought up the fact that George H.W. Bush had calling on had used military force um to suppress protests in 1992 yeah in los angeles but like it was done in a different way it was only done once it was absolutely necessary it it was also it, it took place in a different era of like racial politics and mm, whole different context uh, to the situation yeah, like, as well yeah So, what we have here is Trump and Cotton advocating for much more drastic options, military deployment to many different cities to suppress protests. Mm -hmm. Um, And you have a lot of military operators openly rejecting that. Yeah. So, anyway, that's sort of the... The wild card there. I guess I said Don Jr. was the wild card, but the real you could see Donald wild, Trump wild card. Yeah, I mean 
it's been done once before in American history. Like, I, I don't like comparing, like, contemporary politics to anything that happened before 1950. Because mm-hmm. it just is not at all comparable. And, and there has not been since 1950 a president that has served non-consecutive terms in office. But... I think if somebody was shameless enough to pursue that, it, it would be Donald Trump. Yeah. And honestly, I, I can't confidently say that he wouldn't win the primary. Like, he has... Republican leaders, both in the run-up to the 2016 election and since Trump has been offish, in, in office, made the decision that they were going to put like the institutions of the Republican Party that had in the primary opposed Trump squarely behind Trump. Yeah. And the effect that that has had is a tremendous consolidation of the Republican base around Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. But the danger of that for like those sort of institutions within the Republican Party is Donald Trump has repeatedly and consistently drilled the message into Republican voters that he and he alone is the one person they can trust, right? Yeah. And he's also shown an ability to quickly turn on people, right? Like, Jeff Sessions was a hero to Trump's base before he wasn't. (laughs) And... I mean, Jeff Sessions is probably about to lose a Senate primary because of it. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. It, it's, I think it would be an uphill battle, but it, it's a possibility, certainly. Yeah. So, want to talk about Burundi? Yes, sir. Uh, this is going to be more of just a brief sort of uh, update on just things that have gone down because I just want to talk about that. It's not going to be as long of as our uh, in-depth discussion about the Republican Party, but um, essentially um, Burundi recently had an election um, on the 20th of May 2020. They had their first election um, that didn't include uh, the incumbent president, uh, Pierre Nkurunziza. Um, So uh, the CNDD-FDD, which is the ruling party, um, they ran uh, Evariste uh, Ndayashimye, who is... um, who was the chairman of the party. Um, and then the main opposition was a newly formed political coalition um, known as the uh, National Congress for Liberty. And they ran uh, Agathon Rawasa, who was a prominent uh, Hutu power politician um, who oh led uh, the FNL, which used to be a dissident rebel group from Burundi's civil war. And then it became a political party in 2009. And so the elections... Um, they had an 87% turnout, um, uh, and Mr. Evariste uh, won with 71% of the vote, um, and uh, Ruasa got 25%. Um, and so, apparently, the Burundian constitutional courts um, approved the uh, election results, and um, uh, the CNDD-FDD's candidate is uh, due to become president um, in the near future. Um, but with this, um, there's more news in regards to Burundian politics as well, because um, the president I previously mentioned, the outgoing guy, 
Um, Pierre Nkurunziza, who has been president since 2005, uh, passed away from a heart attack on June 8th, so two days ago at the time of this recording. Oh, um, he was only 55 years old. Uh, he had an extensive career, um, f first as a uh, university teacher, and then he became a rebel leader during Burundi's civil war. He came to uh, lead the CNDD FDD rebel group, um, um, which ended up winning the civil war. And he won the uh, country's first election since the end of that in 2005 and ruled the country um, up until, well, 2020. Um, and uh, in 2015, that was like the sort of year where there's a lot of political crisis because like he wanted to run for a third term and he did. and. Uh, there was a coup and all of that and stuff like that, but um, he basically has ruled, had ruled Bur Burundi since 2005. Um, and uh, his passing was due to a heart attack, uh, which is interesting. And um, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how uh, Burundi politics evolves since Nukurunziza's death, because he was originally going to be like a mentor to like the party or whatever. He's going to still be, like, a major political figure, I guess sort of comparable to uh, Obama right now um, in the U.S. He's still, like, a major popular political figure that's sort of advising um, the Democrats and, and sort of like that. And, like, his word means a lot. He was going to be sort of that figure, but now he's dead. And it'll be interesting to see uh, what Burundi looks like uh, from then. Yeah, so, like, just a quick question for you on that. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I, I know pretty much nothing other than what you just said and yeah. I did not know what you just said before you said <laughs> about Burundian politics but um does this like do you think obviously like I, I'm sure this is a, a tragic situation for his like family mm. and everything but if you have sort of a fledgling democracy it can be, it, it does not necessarily bode well that country to be solely governed and the government to be solely identified with one individual. Yeah. So does his passing maybe open up um, more avenues of building stronger institutions maybe reform or I, I, I don't know, whatever you would mm. want to call it. Um, just building a stronger public. Yeah. There, there have been concerns that his passing would result in further unrest because people like oh. opposition people would take the opportunity to protest and the more extreme parts would continue to uh, rebel. But um, I do think his passing might open up new avenues um of like further democracy in Burundi because obviously without that sort of strong figure um there's more opportunities for opposition to the CNDD FDD party uh to emerge like like we saw with this new um political coalition uh the CNL um that ran uh Rawasa they got a large por portion of the vote um and it seems like I, f I feel like the opposition in Burundi will become stronger with uh, Nkurunziza's passing so, again, I, I don't know anything about this, but it sounds like there are more extreme elements to the opposition, which obviously mm. is not not something you, you'd like to see. Yeah. But at the same time, one of the things that's kind of essential 
a, a good democracy is for the opposition party not to be a, a perpetual minority. I mean, mm. but you, you don't necessarily like we don't have like we don't conceptualize the Democrats as the opposition party. I guess this is a bad example because our democracy functions somewhat differently. Yeah. I guess you, you would in say Britain conceptualized labor as the, the opposition party. I mean, that's what they do it as, but like labor is not labor. This is another bad example because labor is poorly mismanaged. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to avoid going off on a tangent here, mm. but Basically, what I'm saying is, is, isn't there, wouldn't you like them to have a functioning opposition, like a, yeah. an electorally viable opposition? So it, it could be beneficial in that regard. Mm-hmm. Personally, my opinion, I'm personally in favor of the CNDD, FDD, um, because of just their, their foreign policy. They're very, like, in, I have I have opinions in the region that I agree with the CNDD FD's uh, foreign policy opinion on, but also I'm I'm not one to typically support like a one party state or a dictatorship. So I think it is a good idea that the opposition does become viable. Although I'd I'd like um, Rawasa's guys like the more radical elements, the Hutu power people, to sort of fade away from the government because you know Hutu power ideology never really results in anything good happening. Um, <laughs> As, as we've seen before. Particularly um, one very, 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 very... So, the the acts of genocide that occurred in 1994, yeah. as the UN described them. Many acts of many, genocide. Many how, acts. how many of those constitute a genocide? You know, as far as I'm concerned, one act of genocide constitutes a, a horrific violation of the the basic rules that we as humanity have to oh, yeah. ourselves by and demands a proportionate response mm-hmm. for sure for but sure. anyway so i i guess to sort of wrap that up the the question it, it seems to me with regards to how this plays out is whether the sort of resulting instability um creates sort of like a political instability where there is more electoral uncertainty mm-hmm. where the parties become more balanced or if it it you know, obviously what you wouldn't want to see is something where it creates, like, I guess, political in another sense instability where you have, like, armed groups that are yeah. actively... Like, stuff that we've seen that, uh, we yeah. saw in 2015. Yeah. I, I, I guess... I, I, guess think, I think it's really in the hands of uh, Endai Ishimiye. It really depends on how he's going to portray himself, because... So, that's that's just the, the that, That's the... Okay, yeah. so that's the that's okay. the CNDD FDD's candidate. So it, I think it's really in the hands of him, depending on how he portrays himself. Um, if he tries to go like the strongman route, obviously we're not going to see that, like that, like an op- a viable opposition. But if if he if he tries if if he portrays himself in a different light, um, then I I think we could see like Burundi having a true viable electorally viable opposition uh, for the first time and. 15 or so years i mean that's i i guess that's a, a nice sort of optimistic note to end this on yeah. so this has been foreign and domestic i'm will and i'm jake and we'll see you next time